This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, I'm going to play an old episode that has taken on new meaning now that we've aired Yardane Amron's Flux episode, Education is Not the Silver Bullet. If you don't remember or haven't listened, Yardane brought together multiple stories of student activism in India and Puerto Rico to paint a picture of how the privatization and marketization of higher education is a violent act. Back in 2017, I interviewed David Harvey, a distinguished professor of anthropology at the City University of New York. In that episode, Harvey gave a Marxist interpretation of higher education. He touched on student debt, living through contradictions of capitalism, and resistant movements internal to our neoliberal system. Much of what he said provides excellent background and commentary to Yardane's episode. It's also nice to think that Yardane is studying geography as a master student at the University of British Columbia, and David Harvey is a rock star in the field. They make for an excellent pair of Fresh Ed episodes. So here it is, David Harvey on Fresh Ed from December of 2017. David Harvey, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. How has your understanding of the value of higher education changed over time and in place? Uh, well, uh, um, my valuation of it has not changed that much. It's remained pretty constant. Uh, the conditions of higher education have really been radically transformed. And so it's been very difficult uh, to keep my values alive in the face of what I would call the corporatization and the neoliberalization of uh, the university. Uh, and uh, so uh, the nature of the struggle uh, to keep spaces open where dissident views can be freely developed and expressed, uh, that struggle is uh, much harder now than it was, say, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, but 40 or 50 years ago, it was hard as well. So it's like there's been a big cycle of, well, once upon a time it was very hard and then it got easier because battles were won and then we got complacent and then the reaction set in and now it's become harder. So what was it like in the beginning, in the, in the 1960s? I mean, when you said it was, it was hard back then, what made it hard? What was hard? Well, it was very hierarchical. Uh, the professors were gods uh, who you couldn't challenge. Uh, the, uh, there was a certain orthodoxy which uh, was uh, pretty uniform, I would say, in the world I was in, in terms of what kind of social theory was admissible and which was not. Uh, I never encountered much Marx thinking, for example, until I was 35 years old. And then I sort of encountered it by accident and got into it by accident. And uh, there was a considerable struggle uh, as I published more and more things where I cited Marx as being interesting, where people immediately called me a Marxist. I didn't call myself a Marxist, I got called a Marxist. And after about 10 years of being called a Marxist, I gave up and said, OK, I must be a Marxist then if you all say I'm a Marxist. But all I was doing was reading Marx and saying, actually, some stuff in here is very interesting and very significant. And of course, it does have a political tinge to it that I found uh, you know, very attractive, and it helped at a very 
difficult moment in, in uh, the sense that uh, in the United States, where I had just moved at the end of the 1960s, uh, there were urban uprisings all over the place of marginalized populations. Uh, the city I moved to, Baltimore, the year before I went there, a lot of it had burned down in a, a racial uprising. Um, and of course the Vietnam War was, uh, was going on, the anti-war movement, the free speech movement was beginning to sort of uh, make a inroads into the university and the student movement was very strong and very powerful and uh, at the same time there was a lot of resistance to it. So there was a, a period of a very active struggle uh, from the late 1960s through to say the late mid to late 1970s. And in the beginning, I mean, was, did you see the influence of, say, you know, capital in the university in, when you first started? Um, well, I, it was always obvious that uh, universities were class-bound. Uh, my education at uh, Cambridge, for example, uh, I immediately encountered class in Cambridge in a way I'd never done at home when the people from the public schools who were very rich uh, were there and they seemed to be, you know, kind of having a good time and I was sweating away trying to be a good student and in the end, uh, you know, I, I was the one who sort of uh, got the academic honours but they didn't care because they just went off and worked in daddy's firm in London and were ultra rich within and there I was eventually with a sort of a uh, an assistant professor kind of salary, uh, which was peanuts at the time, <laughs> struggling to survive. So, so uh, class was always around in education, um, but I don't think big money was controlling the university in the way it now does. Uh, um, my education, for example, was funded by the state all the way through from school to PhD. So I had a free education uh, and uh, clearly under those conditions you feel able to explore whatever it is you want to explore. Hmm. Were you political in any way, politically active when you were in Cambridge? I, was, uh, I would say I, I came from a background where there was some sympathy with uh, the Labour Party and socialism and I suppose the extent of my political beliefs were roughly uh, Fabian socialist. Uh, but uh, towards the end of the 60s I was getting disillusioned with that over things like the Vietnam War, uh, the fact that uh, uh, British Labour Prime Ministers promised great things but in the end succumbed to the power of big money and uh, uh, as uh, Harold Wilson put it, uh, the gnomes of Zurich uh, had to be uh, uh, satisfied. So, so I started to think there was maybe something wrong with where we were at politically at the same time as I found that a lot of the theoretical apparatus that I understood from economics and sociology and political science were not really adequate uh, to understand the, the problems that I was studying on the ground, particularly in the city of Baltimore. Uh, where, as I said, there was an urban uprising the year before I got there and I became involved in a lot of the studies of, you know, why did this happen, what were the problems in the housing market, and I started to work on uh, the housing market kind of problem. And uh, 
finding that economic theory didn't help me at some point or other, I decided to go off and read Marx and see if there was anything in there. And of course, I found it was great uh, for getting at uh, practical issues. So, um, so Marx, um, as I've learned actually through some of your teachings that are online, um, defines capital as value in motion. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, does that concept apply to education and maybe specifically higher education today? Because you said big money has now kind of come to dominate the universities. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we think about capital in the universities and how do we think about value being in motion in universities? Yeah, I mean, the general, the mass of capital, of course, is, is in motion and, and is speeding up all of the time. Uh, but uh, capital needs certain infrastructures. It needs physical infrastructures which are long-lasting. Uh, highways, roads, ports, things of that kind, which take long-term capital investment. But at the same token, it also needs long-term capital investment in education uh, because uh, the qualities of the labor force uh, become an increasingly significant uh, problem for, for, for capital over time, far more so than in Marx's time. You want a well-trained, educated uh, labor force. Um, and also you need it from the standpoint of the renewal of bourgeois society that uh, there be a great deal of innovation and uh, research universities became centers of uh, innovation. And of course, one of the crazy things I think of now is that uh, there's a lot of cutting back uh, funding of higher education uh, when uh, actually the tremendous investment of, in higher education in the 1960s created an environment which to this day uh, provides a good deal of background for why the United States still remains so strong in the global economy because you have a very educated, entrepreneurially minded workforce. But you're now cutting all of that. And the workforce is less and less likely to be innovative because it's increasingly indebted. So you've actually got a structure of education which is undermining what capital really needs. But nevertheless, uh, some capital has to flow through the universities in such a way as to create that, uh, that labor force. And it is a long-term project, of course, because uh, it's the sort of thing where the benefits only come out 10, maybe even 15 years later. And I guess one of the things that fascinates me now, and like in the present moment in America is, um, and probably in other countries as well, the amount of debt students are in to, to participate in the future labor market. Right. And they, you know, I mean, it's, and, and I think of it sometimes in terms of this idea of the, the wants, needs, and desires of, 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 of capital, right? Like this idea that there is such a desire to be educated that people are going into thousands of dollars in debt, which is really limiting their future prospects. Right. And I, I mean, so I just, you know, what's your opinion on this massive debt that students face? These well, days? I think that the, the general problem of, uh, of circulation of capital is that uh, the circulation of uh, debt has become more and more uh, the, the, the crux of what's going on within the capitalist economy. And so the indebtedness is taking many different forms because uh, of the indebtedness that people get into on the consumer side. Uh, and, and of course, to the degree that education became seen as a commodity, which had to be purchased. Uh, so people needed an effective demand and if they didn't have the money they had to borrow it and so 
you now got the indebtedness of a, a student population, uh, and and this forecloses the, on the future. Uh, and it's, in a way, it's a form of uh, social control in the same way about uh, housing debt that it was said in the 1930s that debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. So debt-encumbered students don't rock the boat. Well, they want to keep their jobs. They don't want to be fired, you know, because they've got all that debt they've got to pay off. So uh, there's a lot of evidence, it seems to me, that this, uh, the graduating student population is far less likely to, to take risks uh, than in a situation that I was in, for example, of coming out with a PhD from Cambridge with uh, no debt. Uh, and and uh, then you can go do what, what you like and you don't have that hanging over you, but now people have this hanging over them. So it's both a social control mechanism, it's also about you know, keeping capital into the future because a debt is a claim on future labor and it's a, it's a claim on the future. So, in fact, uh, we foreclosed on people's futures by, by increasing levels of, uh, of, of debt. And then that means that it's hard to imagine a transformation of capitalism because you've got so much debt. Um, I got personally nervous because my pension fund is invested in debt. So if we abolish the debt, you abolish my pension fund. So my pension fund is, becomes crucially part of the problem. And I, so I, I have this ambivalence. I see the stock market crashing and I think, yay, this is the end of capitalism. And then I think, oh my God, what's happening to my pension fund? <laughs> but this is, this is the sort of contradictory situation that all of us get, get in and uh, it's uh, uh, one of the, the things that actually gives a certain social and political stability to capitalism that when capital gets into trouble and they say, we've got to save the banks, we say, no, don't do that. And then somebody turns to us and said, if you don't save the banks, sorry, all your savings are gone. So then you turn around and say, okay, go save the banks. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that education, on, in some respects, people believe as being transformative and maybe a location to really go against kind of systemic norms. So, you know, like capitalism. But at the same time, the system we have created, like you said, is basically foreclosing the future and making people less um, able to take risks and maybe right. challenge that system. Um, and it makes me think about um, the scholar Lazaroto, who says the debt in education, in higher education, the, what we start realizing is that the value, the purpose of higher education is to teach debt. Students learn debt through this system right. to prepare them to be good kind of capitalist workers right, in the right, future. Right. And, but the, the, the other side of that is that uh, actually uh, students less and less learn how to be critical. So their critical uh, faculties are being eroded and basically, you know, we get situations where students say, oh, don't bother me with all of that. I, just tell me what I have to know to get my qualification and I get it and then I can go off and use that qualification. So it's about the qualification rather than developing a particular mode of thinking, uh, which is critical. Uh, and on the one hand, capital doesn't like critical thinking because at some point or other, as happened at the end of the 1960s, a lot of people started to be highly critical of capital. So capital doesn't like that. On the other hand, if you don't have critical thinking, uh, there's no innovation. 
And so capital sits around and says, well, why, why isn't there more kind of uh, innovative things going on? Uh, and that's because uh, people don't know how to think for themselves. And, and actually there are now complaints emerging, I don't know if you've encountered this, of the labor force coming out of universities that is unable to solve problems because they don't know how to think for themselves. Uh, they just want to find a, 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 some solution into which they sort of plug. So they, they, they want information but they don't have the critical capacity to, to be actually problem solvers. And there's a lot of complaints now among corporate capital of the, the inability of this younger generation to, to respond to the needs of the labor place. So, I mean, given this environment in higher education, and, and you, you work in higher education, I think you still teach as well? Some? I do teach some, yes. So, in, I mean, Marx was very interested in everyday practice. And in your everyday practice as a, as a professor, but maybe more broadly as a, as a citizen, <coughs> how do you navigate this system, these contradictions, as you say? On the one hand, you, you're cheering the fall of the stock market, but on the other hand, you're lamenting the, the collapse yes. of your pension fund. How do you navigate these contradictions and continue to be politically active? Well, I, I mean, for instance, I can start with that story and that contradiction in my own life. And I then will ask students, you know, can you see similar contradictions and, for instance, all this indebtedness and talk about the things that we've been talking about. And uh, if, if, if you do that, then, then people get it uh, straight away and therefore, you know, start to maybe think the system is a problem and that we've got to do something about it and, and then need to learn a lot more about how the system works and at that point you can get into, into things. Uh, the other thing I would want to do, however, is uh, I've always, of course, been interested in urbanization. And if you're in a major city, and if you're in a major university in a major city, uh, it seems to me you've got a huge uh, educational world out there that you just go out on the streets and and start to get people involved to some degree or other what's going on in the streets. One of the great things about uh, teaching at uh, the City University of New York. Uh, is that we tend to get students who are very streetwise and uh, have been out uh, maybe in the social movements and so I don't have to tell them, you know, go out and look at what's going on on the street because they already, they know far more about it than I do. And what they, what they come to me to is to say, how do I understand all of this? What's, what's the framework in which I can understand all of this? And that's why I kind of uh, try to then sort of say, well, okay, let's, let's study Marx and see how uh, what you're experiencing lo re relates uh, to this uh, this mode of this mode of thinking, and try it in that way to get to uh, sort of a critical theoretical perspective. It's incredible to think that Marx's writing from 150 years ago is still relevant to help make sense of students' lives today. Yes, right. Well, actually, even more so. I mean, the, the, the point here is if you said back in the 1850s, uh, where was uh, the capitalist mode of production d dominant? Uh, and it was only dominant in Britain and Western Europe and the eastern part of the United States and everywhere else there was merchants around and so on. But, and right now, of course, it, it dominates everywhere. So there's a sense in which 
the theory which Marx constructed to deal with that world of capitalist industrial production has now become global mm -hmm. and it's more relevant than I think it ever was before. Uh, and, and so I kind of emphasize, want to emphasize that to people because there are quite a lot of people who like to write about Marx and say, well, you know, that, that was about what was going on back then. And I say, well, no, actually, it, it, back then there was all kinds of other things going on in the world apart from, you know, capital accumulation. Now you can't find it hardly anywhere in the world where capital accumulation is not dominant. I know, and that's what I... It's, a, it's amazing to think how it is. It's so pervasive, it's so worldwide, it, it, it is seeping into parts of life, like the university yes, didn't yes, normally right, or didn't right, historically right, have those right, sort of right, logics to right. it. And, and then, I don't know, I guess I get a little pessimistic and kind of think, well, where do we even begin to resist? And how do we resist when it's such a massive system that is so hard to be located outside of? Well, but I think there's a lot of resistance internally within it. Um, I emphasize a lot Marx's concept of alienation, which you know, has not been really very strongly uh, articulated, I think, within the Marxist tradition, partly because somebody like Althusser said that that's an unscientific concept, <laughs> you know, whereas I think it's a very profoundly important uh, concept. And if you kind of said how many people are alienated uh, by the conditions of labor as they currently exist, <clears throat> um, and, and the conditions of labor are not simply about the physical uh, aspect of laboring and, and how much money you get, they're also about the notion of having a meaningful job and a meaningful life. And meaningful jobs are increasingly hard to come by. Um, I, my, I have a daughter who's 27 and her generation looks at the labor market and says there's not much there that's meaningful so I'd rather go and be a bartender and, and uh, actually take one of those meaningless jobs out there. So you find a, a sort of a alienation from the job situation because the meaning in work has disappeared. There's a lot of alienation uh, about urban, daily urban life. I mean, the levels of pollution, the messes that are in transport systems and traffic jams and the hassles of actually dealing with daily life in the city. So there's an alienation in the living space. There's an alienation from politics uh, because the political decisions seem to be made somewhere in the stratosphere and you're not really able to influence them except, uh, you know, at the very local neighborhood level. And, and, and there's an a sense of alienation from nature, an alienation from, uh, from, from some sort of concept of human nature. Uh, and you look at a personality like Trump and say, is that the kind of person I would like to be? Uh, you know, and is that the kind of human being that, that we want to encourage to, to populate the earth? Is that, that, is that what the world's going to be like? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think there's a lot of kind of, uh, of discontent uh, within the system. Um, the discontented people, of course, uh, can vote in all sorts of crazy ways and what we're seeing is uh, in Europe and elsewhere is some pretty crazy political things going on. Uh, and I think here the left uh, has a certain uh, problem that they, you know, we have not uh, addressed uh, all of those political feelings and not proposed some active kind of politics of finding 
better, better solutions uh, so that uh, we've let the game disappear. And I think that to some degree this has a lot to do with what actually I would call the conservatism of the left. Uh, Marxists, for example, are incredibly conservative. Uh, you know, I've lost count of the number of times in a discussion I've been driven back to having to discuss Lenin. Well, I'm a, I, okay, I admire Lenin and I think it was important to read about him, but I don't think the issues right now are those which Lenin was <laughs> faced with. Uh, and I don't want to go over all those and get endlessly lost in all those arguments about whether it was Lenin or Luxembourg or, you know, who was, or Trotsky or whoever was, was right. I want to talk about now, I want to talk about the Marxist critique now, what it's telling us, and then talk and say to ourselves, how do we actually then construct an, an alternative to this wide set of, uh, uh, very wide sense of disillusionment that, that uh, exists in, in, in society. Do you think education broadly, or maybe higher education specifically, can be part of constructing that alternative? Based on your, it, your it can be, it can be, and it should be. Uh, the problem right now is that higher education is more and more dominated by private money. And it's become privatized. The funding has become privatized, and when it was state funded, uh, there was, you know, there was always constraints, but not as fierce as they are now. And basically, big capital and corporations will fund, uh, give massive amounts of money to universities to build uh, uh, research centers. But the research centers are about finding technical solutions. They very rarely have very anything other than a nominal kind of concern about social issues. Mm -hmm. They're not about, I mean, for instance, the environmental field, uh, these uh, institutes for looking at environmental questions, and it's all about technologies, and it's all about uh, you know, taxation arrangements or something of that kind. It's not about consulting with the people, it's not about discussions of those kinds. When we were doing research in, on those questions back in the late 1960s, there was always a lot of public participation and public discussion. Now it's a sort of technocratic imposed from the top solution to the environmental problem which is, which is, which is being designed. Mm -hmm. And if you are interested in the environmental problem from the social perspective, you're likely to be in the humanities somewhere or other, and you can have a little symposium in the humanities about how, you know, these, when you start to be very political about it, but uh, the engineers and the technocrats uh, well-funded in these research institutes are not going to be terribly excited about listening to you. <laughs> I, in a similar way, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes at how in academics, the labor that professors do in terms of writing papers and doing work, you know, much longer than a regular work week. Right. And, you know, there's very few sort of unions fighting for their rights. Um, and more importantly, I think, is that, you know, there's such a perverse or crazy system in a way where academics spend all of this labor writing articles that then get published in these for-profit companies that then sell journals and articles out uh, and very little money goes back to the professor who did the actual right. labor and meanwhile the CEO of Wiley which is a big publishing company is making something like four million dollars a year right. I mean it seems so skewed 
Um, and what's interesting in my mind is that some of these same professors who are in this environment, they use Marxist critiques in their work, but then they, there's almost like a disconnect with their own labor. Yes. And I just, I don't know how to make sense of that sometimes. Well, I think that uh, if you want to get published, then you've got to find a publisher, and a publisher is a capitalistic uh, institution. Um, now, the thing, interesting thing about publishing is that uh, they, publishers tend to publish anything that sells. Uh, so it's possible, if you have a critical perspective, to get published if it, if it sells. Um, and so there are some, you know, obviously some, some books which uh, sell widely uh, and have uh, quite uh, an impact. Uh, and historically, of course, uh, um, you know, Harrington's The Other America back in the 60s suddenly sort of exploded the whole kind of question of uh, uh, poverty in, in the United States. Uh, a book like uh, Piketty's uh, book, uh, for all of it, you know, what I'd be critical of it, nevertheless opened up and, and very much supported uh, what uh, the Occupy movement was doing in talking about the problems of the 1%. And so, uh, and, and Piketty uh, documented a lot of that, so this was extremely useful. So, yeah, you have to use capitalist means to to anti-capitalist ends, but that is in fact one of the contradictions that, that is uh, central to our own social uh, situation. Um, there are, of course, alternatives to do it through social media and, and, and uh, use a sort of copy-left situation uh, of a certain kind, but then that uh, becomes a bit problematic if uh, somebody needs the money from uh, whatever they publish. So yeah, there's, there's the, 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 the labor process. But, but the other thing, but the good thing, uh, at least I would say about the labor process for, for academics is that nobody is, uh, your, nobody is your boss. <laughs> that uh, you do it for yourself, you know, and you, you and, and Marx has a very interesting uh, question of, uh, uh, did uh, uh, Milton, in, in writing Paradise Lost, did he create value? And the answer is no. He just wrote, uh, uh, he has this wonderful phrase, he says, uh, uh, he, uh, Milton wrote Paradise, value, pa Paradise Lost in the same way that a silkworm uh, produces silk. He did it out of his own nature. It only became a commodity when he sold the rights to it for five pounds to somebody, and then it became a, a commodity. But it's not part of capital. It only became capital when the, the bookseller started to use it as kind of a way of circulating, mm. circulating capital. And so I think the uh, I like to think of my my labour as kind of being silkworm uh, labour. Uh, that I do it out of my own nature and, and uh, not uh, out of some sort of instruction from some publisher. So I do it because I, I want to do it, I want to communicate something and I have something to say and I mm. want to lay it out there. And you can't not do it. Yeah, right. No, I, and I, you know, I could, and a lot of it, of course, of the, that labor is free. As it, uh, on the website, for example, people can do the, and then there's the, the, the written version of the Companions to Marx's Capital, which go with the lectures, so people could, some people 
like the lecture format and some people find it difficult so they can go to the written format so but the written format is in the uh, in the publishing world yeah and you, I guess we just hope that there's more people in academic or in academia like you that are doing this out of their own nature and not too worried about how it becomes a commodity. Less, less and less, mm. and this is this is one of the problems I think. Mm. Less and less, uh, and and uh, a whole generation of academics has been raised uh, around this within this disciplinary apparatus that you've got to produce so much of this and so many articles of this sort within a certain period of time in order to maintain your position and. So there's less and less uh, of uh, doing that because when you're under those sorts of conditions, you can't take 10 years to write a book. Uh, I took 10 years to write uh, Limits to Capital. Uh, and that, during that time, I didn't publish that much. And under contemporary conditions, I would have been under real uh, stress about the fact that uh, I wasn't productive enough and all the rest of it. And they would be having me in and saying, you've got to produce more. And there are a lot of, lot of things that I think uh, that have happened as a result. I think the quality of academic uh, publication uh, has diminished very significantly as the uh, quantity has increased. Uh, and the other thing is that instead of undertaking sort of real deep research which takes you a long time, it's far better to write a piece where you criticize somebody else. So you, you just engage in critical kind of stuff and you can write an article like that in you know, six months and so the turnover time of academia has become much shorter and uh, long-term projects are much harder to, to undertake. It reminds me of the, the recent scandal in the Third World Quarterly, the journal article that was published by um, I think an American, I'm not 100% I'm not sure, but he basically set out the case for why we need to see colonialism as, as good. And he puts this whole article together, no research, just this kind of you know, diabolical sort of argument that really gets people upset. Yes. Um, and you know, of course it becomes instantly the highest read article yes. in the Third World right. Quarterly, which has been around for 60 years. Yes. You know? And then of course, I mean, the editorial board kind of quit in protest, resigned in protest. But it just kind of ca encapsulates this moment. Yes, where right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, uh, he also gets uh, a lot of citations, and uh, suddenly, you know, goes to his uh, head of department and says, "I've got, I'm mm. way up there in citations. Mm. Give me more money." That's right. And his his university didn't come out and criticize him. Oh, right. You know, it's about diversity right. of opinion. Yes, right. You know, right. So right. It's yeah. I mean, it's um, you can see how you can game the system yes. in a way. Oh yeah. Academics, and yeah. instead of doing this kind of deep thinking like you're talking about with the, the 10 years to write a book. Yes. Do you think Marx would have been a good academic? No, he'd been <laughs> terrible. He would never have got tenure anywhere. First off, nobody would know what discipline to put him in. Mm -hmm. now, I have a bit of that problem. I mean, I come from geography, but you know, a lot of people think I'm a sociologist or something else, you know. But uh, so he, he doesn't fit easily into any discipline. And, and secondly, he didn't complete much of his work. Uh, and, and I always used to have this little uh, thing on my desk. Uh, he had a letter from his uh, publisher that said, Dear Herr Professor Marx, uh, it's come to our attention that the, you know, we have not yet received your manuscript of uh, Das Kapital. 
um, would you please uh, furnish it to us within six months or we'll have to commission somebody else to write this work. <laughs> Do you know if he met the deadline? No, of course not. <laughs> How long did it take him to write Capital? Oh, uh, well, I, I guess uh, it was basically 15 years, I think. Uh, yeah. And he, there's three volumes in his name for yes. Capital, but the third one was co-written or was compiled. Compiled. Well, both volumes two and volume three were compiled by Engels. Mm -hmm. And there has been a lot of discussion about uh, how much uh, Engels manufactured. Uh, and he certainly made it seem like uh, these notes which Marx had were closer to publication than they actually were. So, so there's a lot of critical discussion because the manuscripts are now freely available and uh, People are reading the manuscripts very carefully, out of which Engels constructed uh, the actual text that comes down to us, and they're finding all kinds of things mm. that Engels added or uh, or missed. So there's, there's an interesting yeah. scholarly exercise going on on that. Was there supposed to be more than three volumes? Yes. How many? Um, depends uh, how you count them. He in in the Grundrisse he gave several. Uh, proposals. Um, uh, the three volumes he's got of capital already, there, then one on the state, uh, one on the world market and world trade, and another on crises. So there were at least three others, uh, and it's possible to find other places where he mentions other things he needs to look at. Uh, in fact, uh, he, the, the, the question of wage labor uh, is covered, of course, to some degree in Volume 1 of Capital, but uh, Marx never uh, really wrote out a very sophisticated uh, explanation and discussion of wage determination. And he had in mind to do that, but the evidence is that he had some preliminary thoughts about that, but those preliminary thoughts did end up in Volume 1 of Capital, but uh, he did, I think, want to have a whole volume on wage labor uh, in itself. But like I say, bits and pieces of that idea ended up in Volume 1 of Capital, but not the whole, yeah, right. whole thing. Mm. Unfinished yes. work, I guess. Yes, right. <laughs> and one of the things I think we should be doing, those of us who are, who are familiar with the text, is to try to find ways to complete uh, what he was uh, talking about and, and actually to represent what he's talking about in the three volumes of Capital, which is what I tried to do in the last book. So uh, it actually raises a good point. Who else, in, you know, in the next generation of Marxist thinkers, I mean, you have spent 50 years doing this. I mean, who do you see today as kind of taking up the mantle in the next generation? Uh, the answer to that is I'm, I'm not quite sure because there's a big gap between people of my generation or close to my generation, sort of 60s and, and above. There's a big gap between that and, say, the, the, a younger generation in their late 20s, early 30s. So me. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of people in that generation who are actually very interested mm. uh, in, in exploring Marx in much greater detail. Uh, in between, there's hardly anybody. 
and, and, and the people who were there have largely abandoned what they were doing and become kind of neoliberalized and all the rest of it. So there are some people in, 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 in the middle, obviously, so it's not completely blank, but, um, but I, I have a great deal of faith in the, uh, your generation, actually, because I think your generation is taking it much more seriously. I think it feels more of a compelling need that they need some sort of analysis of this kind. And I think what uh, my generation is obliged to do, and which is what I've been trying to do, I think, over the last you know, few, last decade, really, uh, with what I call the Marx Project, is to, is to produce a reading of Marx which is more open and fluid and, and, and more related to daily life uh, and is not too scholastic. Uh, so that I try to produce these uh, interpretations of Marx that are uh, simple but not simplistic. It's very difficult to nego negotiate that, that distinction, but that, that's been my aim. And one of the things that I think has been encouraging is the, what I see as a, a, a very positive reaction to that, uh, uh, to that mission. So Marx was known for being very well read, and he was a beautiful writer. I mean, the Capital One, or Volume yes, One, yes, right, is just an absolutely right, beautiful read, right, and he right. really draws on yeah. such a wide range of, of other writers. And I, I just wonder, you know, are there any, are you reading anyone that's, you know, a contemporary scholar, or maybe an artist, or a, you know, filmmaker, that is capable of kind of bringing in such a wide variety of thinking into the creation of some artwork or some scholarly work in, in, a, in a beautiful way, like Marx did back 150 years ago? Um, I, I, you know, I think, I mean, there are people who, who uh, have uh, a broader perspective on Marx. I mean, I think of somebody like Terry Eagleton, uh, who I think uh, can bring in a lot of the cultural things and in his sort of, little book on why Marx was right, I think, did a very nice job of kind of, uh, uh, you know, taking up uh, the spirit of Marx as an emancipatory thinker and, and, and pushing it home. So there are people, I think, who are capable of, uh, of, of doing that. Uh, but somebody who knows uh, Greek philosophy, uh, or Hegel, Inside Out, uh, Milton, Milton, Shakespeare, you know, I just, I just, I just boggles the mind that somebody <laughs> could sit there with all of that in his uh, head uh, and, and produce work which, uh, you know, is, is fascinating, I think, uh, in terms of uh, how to interpret it. Well, David Harvey, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk. It's, it was an honor, to, really, to speak today. Well, it's my pleasure to uh, have with you. And remember, it's your generation <laughs> that has to do it. So get busy, uh, get going. I will get back to my 10-year book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so okay. much. Okay. David Harvey is a distinguished professor of anthropology at the City University of New York. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. 
Freshhead's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ogunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afro-Boteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Bren, and I'll be back next week.